if we don't uh, get started, we're about 10 minutes or so behind. We're supposed to take one more hour here. Now, the implication of what we just said, uh, namely that our joy comes to climax in glorifying God, or to put it like this, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. That's the way I summarized my book. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. If that's true, Christian hedonism is born. That is, you now have the mandate to pursue maximum pleasure in all of life. Because if God is most glorified in you when you are most happy in him, it's your duty to seek as much happiness as possible. That's Christian hedonism. Now, that's this talk, your passion for God. Um, hedonism, according to one dictionary definition, is, quote, a living for pleasure, unquote. I buy that definition and I embrace it as the goal of my life. I live for pleasure. And I have heard from Psalm 1611 and many other places. Thou dost show me the path of life in thy fullness. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are what? Pleasures forevermore. So I know now where they're to be found. Fullness and everlasting pleasures. My goal is to be as happy as I can be forever. Now, I hope in view of the way I started this this morning about ministering in tears, you will not compute that in your brain the way some uh, bright-eyed, ever-smiling, cheery types uh, would compute it. Martin Marty came to Bethel one time when I was teaching there, and he unfolded a very provocative message on summary and wintry personalities. He said, there are summery personalities and there are wintry personalities. I think I have an October personality. <laughs> it's just always a little, I'm always kind of looking at the, I look at graveyards a lot. <laughs> I think about my mortality a lot. And it doesn't make me an unhappy person. I think it makes me an intense person. Um. But I'm not a I'm not a summary person. I don't I don't feel an inner need to make others chipper. So you you need to distinguish between what I mean by happiness and joy and pleasure. I use those all interchangeably, by the way, and the kind of thin, superficial, uh, keep keep smiling little buttons or bumper stickers. So this talk is you should make it your lifelong goal to be as happy as you can possibly be forever in God. And therefore, our problem as Christians, I believe our problem as Christians is not that our desire for happiness is too strong. I never diagnose sin in my church as people being addicted to pleasure. Never. It's that they're addicted to cheap, 
inadequate, short-term, unsatisfying pleasures like TV, home, microwave, Macintosh, a nice vacation, good job, nice family, and all the stuff that you're supposed to buy in order to make your life happy. That, in fact, is what we've settled for. And our hearts in America are shriveling, have shriveled, are in the process of shriveling down until the capacity for great joy and deep pleasures and profound happiness is just about gone in a lot of people. They can't even conceive of what you mean by the glory of God ravishing your soul because their hearts have shrunk. And in fact, I think the source of the Kantianism, let's throw out a few fancy terms here now, and Stoicism of American evangelicalism and American religion, maybe religion worldwide, the source of turning joyless duty into the essence of virtue, the source of that is that our hearts have shriveled so much that we don't want to bear witness to our lack of capacity to do anything with joyfulness. In other words, if virtue includes the need, if it includes doing something cheerfully, God loves a cheerful giver, and we have lost the capacity for spiritual joy, the best way to keep from being driven out of the church is to say that virtue really isn't that. Virtue is duty. To redefine virtue in terms of joyless duty so that our untransformed hearts will not be indicted. This was a devastating and liberating discovery for me that God calls me to pursue happiness all the time and everywhere and in everything I do. So let me try to uh, do a little biographical thing here. As I began to become a Christian hedonist in 1968 through Jonathan Edwards, C.S. Lewis, Dan Fuller, uh, Flannery O'Connor, uh, Ayn Rand, and others, as I began to become a Christian hedonist, objections emerged out of my head. I'm generally my own worst critic, and which is good, because then when others criticize me, I'm, I'm ready usually. With I, I usually have thought of more problems with my position than other people have. So let me give you five problems with what I've just said, and then we will biblically try to answer each of the problems so that you don't just walk out of here logically. See, we've kind of got a logical thing going here. And uh, you might say, oh, yeah, it does seem logically that you should pursue happiness. But, boy, it sure doesn't feel right. No, it just, mm, just doesn't seem biblical. So my goal now is to, to just put the logic aside and just look at texts for the next uh, hour or so. Here, here are the objections to which we will respond with text. Number one, does the Bible really explicitly teach what you just said? Or do you just infer it? Does it teach that you are to pursue your own pleasure? Second objection or problem. What about self-denial? I mean, that's a big biblical motif. Surely that stands in the way of this pleasure-seeking hedonism that you're commending. Number three. Doesn't a focus on all this pleasure and feeling put too much emphasis on emotion? In Christian life. What about the will? Isn't Christianity really a commitment of the will? 
to endorse truth and to follow Jesus. What about the will? You seem to be leading us down the path to emotionalism. Fourth, um, what becomes of the noble concept of serving God as a duty? I mean, the word duty is not a bad word, is it? Historically, it hasn't been viewed as a bad word. It's a good word. And what about service of God? I mean, to talk about always seeking your own pleasure just doesn't sound like a servant way of talking. And then fifth, uh, if you succeed in persuading everybody to pursue their own pleasure, what becomes of God-centeredness? Haven't you put everybody at the center of their own affections in pursuing their own joy? Whatever became of this God-centeredness you were commending in the first hour? So those are my five questions I'd like to try to answer. And in answering them, show you that your passion for God, your joy in God, your delight in God, does in fact mean that you should pursue your pleasure all the time in everything you do. Question number one, does the Bible really teach this, that you are to pursue your pleasure? And I would say yes, and I would answer it in, I think, uh, three ways with three kinds of texts. Number one, there are commands in the Bible for you to pursue your happiness. For example, Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord. Now, I think that's like thou shalt not commit adultery. That's not a suggestion. That's a command. Delight yourself in the Lord. You're supposed to do that. That's your duty. C.S. Lewis wrote to Sheldon Van Auken, I think, and said, you, you know, don't you, that it is the Christian's duty to seek as much happiness as he can. Or Psalm 32, 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And you, of course, can, once you start thinking of commands to be happy, they're all over the place. Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord, and again I say rejoice. That's a command. Be happy in God. Be happy. And if you're presently not happy, and you hear that command, it's like hearing the command, thou shalt not commit adultery when you're in adultery. You get out of it. You should try to get out of it. And we'll talk some about the how of this, because we all fight every day to stay in joy. We're not perpetually in joy. It's a up and down, in and out kind of thing. So that's my first answer to the question, does the Bible teach? Here's my second answer. The Bible teaches that you should pursue your joy in God and in what you do uh, by threatening you if you don't. I remember reading in C.S. Lewis, I forget which book it was, but he quoted Jeremy Taylor to this effect. God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. And I, I laughed. I thought, oh, that's clever. I like that. But is it biblical? Is that a biblical? Is that, does that paraphrase any biblical text? And, and it was several years before I found it. Now I know where it comes from. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 47 and 48, which goes like this. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you 
in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and in want of all things. Get that? Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, you're going to serve your enemies. God threatens terrible things if you will not be happy. So yes, it, it is commanded in Scripture. It's commanded directly. It's commanded by threat. I think it's also commanded in the nature of faith. The nature of faith. Hebrews 11.6 Without faith, sorry for the misspelling, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now what is faith that pleases God? Faith believes two things. It believes that God exists and it believes that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. You cannot please God unless you come to him as a rewarder. Which means you can't please him unless you pursue your happiness. Doesn't it? I mean, reward is good. Good things. Rewards are good things. They're not bad things. So if you come to God for reward, you're coming for blessing. You're coming to be made happy, to be helped, to be blessed. And God says, I like that. That makes me happy when you do that. And that was that was what was so revolutionizing about Christian hedonism in my life. That God loves to be the benefactor in my relationship with him and not the beneficiary. He wants me to be the beneficiary, him to be the benefactor, and he gets glory when I get satisfied. The best way to glorify a fountain, and I'm getting ahead of myself here, but that's okay, I get excited about this. The best way to glorify a fountain is not to haul buckets of muddy water up from the valleys of human effort and dump them in and say, I've met your need, fountain. I like you. I love you. Oh, I want to meet your need. The best way to glorify a fountain is to get down on your empty hands with your thirsty soul and put your face in the water and suck life. And then look up and say, ah, which is praise and worship. That's the way you glorify. That's what this text is about. If you want to please God, don't bring him anything. Except an empty soul that feeds and thirsts and hungers. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. Belief. My definition for belief is a being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. That's my definition of faith, saving faith. Faith is a being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. It's a very hedonistic definition of faith because right there it is in Hebrews eleven six. So my third answer to whether the Bible teaches the pursuit of your joy is that the nature of faith in Hebrews 11.6 and John 6.35 that I just quoted uh, and, and many other texts says, yes, yes, you can't even please God unless you pursue him as a rewarder, that is, pursue your satisfaction in him. And one last answer to this first question, namely the nature of sin. I've got this one over here. This text right here is a wonderful text. Oh, you ought to all preach on this text sometime. 
Jeremiah 2, because it is so modern, it's just so relevant. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have exchanged or changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. Now, here they are. What is evil? This is a definition of sin, I believe. Definition of evil. My people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. That's number one. Number two, they have hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So so God looks at the universe and he says, insanity. This is crazy. Be appalled, O heavens. And the picture is God comes to the world. He comes to his people, Israel. He comes to us and our churches. And he is an everlasting fountain of joy and satisfaction and glory. And he's just a Vesuvius of wonder. And he and he presents himself for free enjoyment. Have me. You can have me. You can drink from me. You can be satisfied with me all you want, forever and ever. No vacant places in your heart anymore. And we, we check this out with this, hmm. Fountain. Hmm. God. We say, I don't think so. And we go over here <laughs> and we take mud and we make ourselves bowls. Bowls. That can hold no water. Nothing. They cannot. And we suck on the money and the sex and the drugs and the alcohol and the power and the job and the family and we don't get anything that satisfies. That's sin. The meaning of sin is the insanity of not being a Christian hedonist. The insanity of turning away from the banquet table of everlasting satisfaction in God and trying to carve out a life in a job, in a a life of fame, a life of power, a life of lust, life of family, anything. A lot of them innocent in and of themselves. And But when you make them the cistern from which you suck your life, they're dry, they're broken. They do not satisfy. And that's a great text because you can fill that up in your church with whatever your people are trying to get their life from. And they're not getting it. And they need to be shown that they're not getting it. So that's my answer to the first question. Yes, the Bible teaches that we should pursue our own pleasure. That that text right there said, in essence, don't turn away from the living fountain to broken cisterns. Turn toward the living fountain. And if the living fountain feels out of your reach, pursue the living fountain. Don't give up until you're at the living fountain. So it's a very hedonistic teaching. Question number two. What about self-denial? What you're saying just sort of sounds right, but goodness, it doesn't seem to fit with lots of biblical teaching about sacrifice and self-denial. Now, my answer to this is to go to the text concerning self-denial, Mark 8, 35, where it says whoever would save his life will lose it. And say, okay, 
I hear you. Whoever would take up his cross and follow me must deny himself. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But read on. Because the way Jesus reasons now is very hedonistic. Whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now, what's the reasoning there? The reasoning is you don't want to save your, I mean, you don't want to lose your life, do you? And everybody says, no, we're hedonists. We don't want to lose our life. Good. He says, that's the way I made you. I made you to love life. I want you to love, to be alive forever with maximum joy. Don't ever let any Stoic or Kantian philosopher tell you that that's not right. You should, you're built that way. I made you that way to love life. Just like you have an appetite in your stomach for food, you have an appetite in your soul for joy. And so don't ever lose that. But now look, I'll tell you how to, to have life. Namely, lose your life. And in the same text occurs, the same kind of text occurs in John 12, 25, where he says, uh, he who loses his life or hates his life is the word in John. He who hates his life in this world will gain it for eternal life. Now, that's a very important qualifying phrase and helps us understand what he means by losing life. To lose life means what well, you might lose your life. You might be killed. In the pursuit of joy. Flannery O'Connor, the novelist, Catholic novelist from the South, Georgia, wrote this. I don't assume that renunciation goes with submission or even that renunciation is a good in itself. Always you renounce a lesser good for a greater. The opposite is what sin is. Exactly. The struggle to submit is not a struggle to submit, but a struggle to accept and with passion. I mean, possibly with joy. Picture me with my ground teeth stalking joy, fully armed, too, because it is a highly dangerous quest. Now, what I think she means by that is you can get killed in following Jesus toward joy. And in fact, Jesus said, many of you will be, they will kill you, but not a hair of your head will perish. <laughs> Isn't that an amazing statement in Luke uh, 20, 21? Many of you they will kill, but not a hair of your head will perish. Which simply means, if you're willing to lose your life for my sake, you will soar right into perfectly cared for glory. You can't ever outgive or out-serve, or out-sacrifice God. Um, Livingston, I'll quote that at the end, I think, said things like, I never made a sacrifice, as many other missionaries did. So that there is a doctrine of self-denial. But the doctrine is that you deny yourself lesser things for greater things. Peter didn't catch on to this right away and said, uh, um, at least my interpretation of the mood in this passage in Mark 10 is uh, that he was a little bit embarrassed and Jesus scolded him. Remember the rich young man who came and Jesus said, it's hard for the rich to enter into the kingdom. And the disciples said, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, well, with men, it is impossible. 
Nobody can be saved. But, but with God, all things are possible. And then Peter pipes up and says, um, Lo, this is Mark 10, 28. Lo, we've left everything and followed you. Now, I just wish I could have seen the look on Jesus' face here. Because what, what Peter is basically saying is, well, we've sacrificed a lot to follow you. What? What about us? Now, Jesus is a dyed-in-the-wool Christian hedonist who does not believe sacrifice is possible, ultimately. And here's the way he expresses himself to Peter. And I, I don't know what the tone of voice was, but I'll try this one out. Uh, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, no one, has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels who will not receive a hundredfold in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands and persecutions. That's the uh, side effect of the medicine that makes you well. Persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. In other words, Peter, get off it. What's this sacrifice stuff? What's this? We've left everything and followed you. Jesus responds to that kind of self-pitying sense of sacrifice in the service of God with rebuke. I believe it's a rebuke. It's a gentle rebuke, probably, but I think it's a rebuke. He says, come on, Peter, you haven't left one thing that you're not going to get back a hundredfold. And in the age to come, it'll all be paid back ten millionfold. So what's this self-pitying sacrifice stuff you're talking about? You are to... Leave those things, not with a sense of loss, but with a sense of greater gain. Nobody should go to the mission field with a sense of loss. You'll be a lousy missionary. Absolutely lousy. If you go out there and tell those people, oh, I've left so much behind in order to come do this drudgery work or in order to communicate the mere gospel of Jesus or merely get people saved or merely glorify God. And what I really want is my house in the suburbs in Minneapolis again. What a terrible missionary. But if you go in the pursuit of a hundredfold brothers and sisters and a hundredfold houses at your disposal in these new converts and the glory of God in everlasting life, you make a good missionary because then you'll be communicating something that they might actually want from you. <laughs> That's my answer to the second question about self-denial. Yes, yes, there is a doctrine of self-denial. I'm, I'm, I am 10 million miles away from the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And uh, I mean, in fact, from my teaching to be an undermining of that gospel. I titled this book to trick people who like that kind of gospel. <laughs> Third question. Aren't I making too much of emotions? Saying that it's crucial to seek my happiness. Isn't Christian commitment a commitment of the will? Isn't that the essential thing in the Christian life in Christianity? I remember back in 1967 in an apologetics class taught by Millard Erickson at Wheaton College reading Situation Ethics by Joseph Fletcher. This is a bad book. And... Uh, 
but it, it, it's bad for different reasons than most people thought. You know, most people thought it was bad because it said, well, you really can't say it's always wrong to fornicate or, you know, commit adultery. It's just the situation it dictates. And that's, that's wrong, I think. But there's a deeper problem with this book. Fletcher um, said that love is not an emotion because love his main argument was love is commanded in the Bible. And you can't command emotions and therefore love must be a raw act of will involves doing things but not necessarily feeling things. And I remember as a sophomore in college or junior, whichever it was, 67 junior, saying, hmm, that doesn't seem right to me. And now I know a lot better why it doesn't seem right. Namely, emotions are commanded everywhere in the Bible. Everywhere. Because God can command whatever we ought to give, whether we can give it or not. For example, joy is commanded. Rejoice in the Lord. Hope is commanded. Psalm 42, hope in God. Fear is commanded. Luke 12, fear him who can cast both soul and body into hell. Peace is commanded. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Zeal is commanded. Boil in the Holy Spirit. Romans 12, 10. Grief is commanded. Weep with those who weep. Desire is commanded. Desire, the sincere spiritual milk of the word. 1 Peter 2, 2. Tenderheartedness is commanded. Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind, tenderhearted. Brokenness and contrition are commanded. James 4, 9. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Gratitude is commanded. Ephesians 5.20. Give thanks for everything. Every one of those are emotions. I remember arguing with a philosopher one time that gratitude wasn't an emotion. He made no sense to me whatsoever. You you can... If if my eight-year-old gets black socks for, for Christmas and he opens this box up and it's black socks from his grandmother and he looks at them and kind of smiles a little bit, and she's sitting on the couch. You you can, I can tell Barnabas, say thank you to your grandmother. And he'll say it. Thank you, grandmother. <laughs> but that's not gratitude. Gratitude is a feeling. If it isn't there, it isn't there. But God can still command it, and he does. So my... Uh, my first response to, to Fletcher's argument that I'm making too much of emotions because the, the, the essential things like love are not emotions. They are commanded and therefore uh, not emotions. I say the, the whole logic of that is wrong. You know, his problem is basically that he's Arminian. That's, that's the, the root issue here of whether or not, like Augustine says, um, Command what thou wilt and grant what thou commandest. Thou demandest continence, O Lord. Grant what thou wilt, command what thou wilt, or grant what thou commandest. And so if you have an Augustinian theology, then you can process all of these commands to have emotions which we can't turn on on and off like, like a faucet. If you're down and the Bible commands you to be up, you, you can't just go Okay, push the up button. It doesn't work that way. 
And so the Bible has every right and God has every right to command from us what is fitting for the creatures of a holy and gracious God, even though we don't have the capacity in the moment to produce those emotions. I don't think I'm making too much out of emotions. I think emotions are not the caboose on the end of the train. They are the fire in the engine. If you, if you understand these things, joy, hope, fear, peace, zeal, grief, desire, and even faith. Remember my definition for faith? Faith is a being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. Even faith has an emotional component to it. And love does too. We'll talk more about that when we, in the third hour. Love is more than feeling. I'm ready to say that. It is, it is right to stop and help a person change their tire at 42 below zero, whether you feel like it or not. But I would ask you, do you feel more loved in the hospital when someone comes to you begrudgingly out of duty or joyfully because they like to come to see you? Do you feel more loved when they come begrudgingly out of duty or when they come freely, gladly and expect to be made happier when they see you. And every one of us is going to answer. I feel more loved, not when they begrudgingly come out of duty, but when they come gladly, which simply means real love has a delight component in it. If you want really to make someone feel loved, you, you do good things for them cheerfully, not begrudgingly. So that's that's an experiential proof in my judgment that it's not true to define love as a mere act of willpower. The fourth question was. um, What becomes of the noble ideal of serving God in this model of Christian life where you're supposed to pursue your own joy? It doesn't sound like. the way a servant is supposed to serve a master, and that's a real dominant model. Paul was a doulos, servant of, of Christ, and it, didn't, it just doesn't seem to fit. Okay, here's my response to that. Um, we have to be real careful in defining the biblical um metaphor of service in relation to God. You you can define God as a master in yourself as a servant that makes him look like a plantation owner desperately in need in a lot of in a lot of in need of a lot of slave labor. That's and that I fear is the kind of model is in some people's minds when they think of themselves as a servant of God. I'm a servant of a master. He's the plantation owner and I'm the slave and his job isn't going to get done unless I do it. And so there's a tremendous weight on my back to get this work done. And so I am serve this needy God. Now, there are some warnings against that misuse in Bible. Here's 17, Acts 17.25. Um, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. So that text says you can't serve God. 
He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Now, that text is in the Bible, I believe, to warn us against misunderstanding the metaphor of servant master. You can take all the metaphors of Scripture and misuse them. If you take the servant master metaphor of our relation to God and put God in the position of an an employer who's going to go belly up and file chapter 11 if his uh, employees go on strike, you have a very bad theology. This says he doesn't need his, his servants. God does not function out of need for Christians or pastors or missionaries. We glorify God not by doing what he needs us to do, but by enjoying what he gives us the privilege to do. And if we don't enjoy it, we're putting him in the position of a taskmaster that demands from us what he needs rather than putting him in the position of an overflowing fountain that is benefiting us and letting us maximize our enjoyment of him in the, in the duty of the pastorate. It's just everything hangs on your view of God. Is he a God who has no needs because he gives to all men life and breath and everything? Or is he a God who really is going to stub his toe if you don't produce in the pastorate? He is not going to really make it. His purpose just might flop in New England if you don't work hard enough for this taskmaster. Here's another one from Psalm 50. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and all that is in it is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. In other words, don't reverse roles with me. Don't think that I'm hungry and you've got the food and you're going to bring it into my room and feed me. That's not what service means. You're not my butler. I'm not hungry. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I own you. I own the breadbasket of Minnesota, Nebraska, and Iowa. I own the universe. You can't enrich me. Who has given a gift to him that he should be repaid? Who has been his counselor? For from him and through him and to him are all things. So what should we do then if you want to glorify God? Call upon me in the day of trouble. And I will deliver you and you will glorify me. How do you glorify God? Ask him for help. Drink from his fountain. Hold out your empty hands. Lift up the cup of salvation. Be needy in his presence. Don't presume to be his benefactor. Let him be full. You be empty. That's the way God gets glory. Um, all I'm doing here is defining servanthood, true biblical service. What's it like? Matthew 6.24 gives us a really remarkable picture of service. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The reason that's a remarkable text is because we should ask the question, what does it mean to serve money? How do you serve money? And then flip it over and relate it to God. Do you uh, meet money's needs? No, that won't work. 
Do you improve upon money? Do you, does it mean ironing out the bills and folding them nicely and uh, putting them in a safe place so that they feel good about how you're taking care of them? That's not what serving money means. Serving money means calculating all of your life's choices so as to be in a position to benefit from money. Guiding your life through all the possible choices and movements with money in view and where you can get the most benefit from money. So if money's moving over here, move over here. If money's moving over here, move over here. If the blessing from money is going here, go there. If it's prospering here, go there. Just follow money around and get under the fountain of money. And then you're serving money. Now just apply that to God and you'll have the right definition of serving God. Serving God means calculating all of your life's choices so as to move with where the blessing of God is moving. To be under the fountain of God. If God is here and pouring out his blessing here, you move here. If God's, it's like a, a spotlight on a stage. So I ask when, when Jude, is it Jude 20 or 21? It says, keep yourself in the love of God. My picture is that there's a big beam up there on a stage and it's going around and the light is here and I'm in it and the light starts to move and I just kind of, I just kind of go like this, kind of staying in the light. Of, of the theme. If you walk in the light. As he is in the light. You will have fellowship. With one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses you. From all sin. In other words you enjoy uninterrupted fellowship. If you just stay in the light. Walk in the light. If you start to move into the sin of darkness. A child of the light feels that. Confesses sin. And steps back into the dark. Into the light of, of fellowship. And so you're, you're just staying, or to shift the metaphor, you're staying under the fountain. God's just pouring out of the fountain. And if you, if you trade that fountain for broken cisterns over here and try and say, whoa, whoa, that's not going to work over there. I'm not getting anything. Hedonism. I'm not getting what I need to live in full happiness with God. So servanthood, this is really switching the categories around. You got to get this now. Servanthood means keeping yourself in a place where you can benefit most from God's blessings. I don't have it on an overhead, but in Psalm 123, this is really made clear. Psalm 123. And this is so important for pastors and Christian leaders to see, lest we begin to see ourselves as Slaves of a taskmaster or needing to meet God's needs. Psalm 123, 1 and 2. To thee I lift up my eyes, O Lord, O thou who art enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants. Now watch the image of servanthood here. As the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master. As the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress. So our eyes look to the Lord our God. Till he have mercy on us. That's a revolutionary view of servanthood. A servanthood says you've got a little maid. And she's got a mistress. And the point of servanthood is not that she slave to meet the mistress's need. But that she look to the mistress until her needs are met. It's exactly the reverse of what many people think servanthood is. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, 
As the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he have mercy on us. So my answer to the question, what becomes of service or servanthood uh, in this model is that uh, service or servanthood becomes fulfilled and corrected and uh, modeled biblically because the biblical model of servanthood is to be a receiver which blesses others. One last text maybe on this point. It's my favorite text with regard to my philosophy of ministry. You say, have you got a verse that expresses your philosophy of ministry for Bethlehem Baptist Church? I would say, yes, I do. It's First Peter 4.11. And it goes like this. Let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies so that in everything God may get the glory through Jesus Christ. The giver gets the glory. And therefore, servanthood is not thought of primarily in terms of giving to God, but getting from God. Let me insert a parenthesis here about worship. And I might step on a toe here, but that's that's okay as long as it heals. Many, many pastors get fed up with their people's lackadaisical, lukewarm response in worship. And assess the problem as people coming to get instead of to give. If you people would just come in here to give instead of to get, we'd have a good worship service. That's not true. That's not the problem. That is not the problem. And as long as you assess that to be the problem, you kill your people. Worship is a feast, and your job is to spread the banquet and to tell your people to come and get. And when they've tasted, to look up and say, ah. If you keep telling them their job is to bring something in here for God, you'll kill it. You'll kill it. Now, I know that the Bible says, give God praise and give God glory and give God honor. That's not what the people hear, however. And most of them are so banged out and down that they can't do it anyway on Sunday morning. So that what I say to them is, and I say this often when I welcome them to worship, I realize that uh, there are three ways you can be worshiping God right now, hedonistically. One, you can be overflowing and ready to burst with praise. Two, you can feel the absence of that overflow, but a longing to have it. Oh, I wish I felt that way. I have felt that way before. I don't feel that way now, but I wish I did. That longing is worship because it expresses the worth of God that they wish they could uh, rise to. Or, and I say this is the most healing and helpful of all, I say some of you are so low and so emotionally twisted and drained and flat and strung out from the battle you just had in the car and some of these husbands and wives came in separate cars, it's so bad right now, that you don't even feel the longing. But you feel bad about that. And that bad feeling is worship. Because you are, in a little mustard seed way, saying 
I wish I could wish to worship God. It's about as low as you can get. If you don't have that, you can't worship. And I'm willing to say that. You can sing the hymns. I don't believe that's worship. I don't think singing hymns and praying prayers and reading the Bible is worship if there's no heart in it. But if the only little speck of heart there is in it is, I feel so terrible that I don't even long to praise God. That's worship. I believe. Because that, there's a little tiny echo of God's excellence there. A little tiny, uh, reflection of His worth. So, serving God means receiving Him. And if, if, when we call it a worship service, service, now you've got some categories to really make that sound good to people. Service means like a, like a servant comes into the presence of his master and holds out his hands and says, um, we've been working out in the fields and, uh, we're really hungry and we're really thirsty. Anything for us today? The, uh, Let's see if I have one more response to that question. Hmm. i got to give you this quote from Edward John Carnell. We're still on question number four. What about service or duty? That noble concept. And Edward John Carnell wrote, Suppose a husband asks his wife if he must kiss her goodnight. Must I kiss you goodnight? Her answer is, you must, but not that kind of must. What she means is this, unless a spontaneous affection for my person motivates you, your overtures are stripped of all moral value, end quote. And I think that's exactly right. In other words, there is such a thing as duty, but not that kind of duty. It's the duty to be happy in kissing your wife or God. Last question, quickly. Um, what becomes of the centrality of God in all of this? When I say pursue your own pleasure, make that your main aim in life is to be happy, what becomes of the centrality of God? My two answers are first uh, two images. Let me just create two images for you. Uh, Noel and I will have been married 23 years in December. And suppose I come home, uh, and I don't usually ring the doorbell when I come home, but I've got uh, 23 uh, yellow daisies behind my back, because that's our flower. And I ring the doorbell, and uh, she looks at me funny, and I ring the doorbell, and I pull them out and say, happy anniversary, Noel. And she says, oh, they're beautiful, Johnny. Why did you? And I say, it's my duty. my duty. That's what husbands are supposed to do. Good husbands. I want to be a good husband. Am I a good husband? Now, the reason you laugh and the reason that doesn't click is not because duty is a bad thing. I mean, it's a noble concept. What's wrong with duty? Why we laugh at duty? We laugh at duty because in that moment, Noel is not honored by duty. What would honor her? What would have been the right answer to the question, Oh, Johnny, why did you do it? The right answer would have been, I couldn't help myself. In fact, 
change your clothes because we're going to go out because there's nobody in the world I would rather spend time with tonight than you. It will make me so happy to be with you tonight. And she would not respond by saying, oh, you Christian hedonist. All you ever think about is how you can be happy. (laughs) That's not what she would say. And the reason she won't say that, the reason she does not say that is because when I declare that my happiness is in her presence, she is glorified. She feels it, she knows it, and so does God. So my answer to this last question is, well, doesn't the pursuit of your own pleasure put you at the center and not God is an emphatic and absolute no. We make a God out of whatever we have most pleasure in. Therefore, the way to make a God out of God, the way to exalt and glorify God is not to answer him. Oh, why do you serve me? Oh, why do you worship me? Well, good Christians are supposed to. That does not honor God. What honors God is to say, nothing makes me happier than to be in your presence. Nothing makes me happier than to know your will and do it in the fellowship and power of your Holy Spirit. Nothing makes me gladder than you. And God would say, hmm, good hedonist. Pursuing your own joy, I see. And you would say, I understand. And he would say, me too. Thank you. I'm getting the glory. You're getting the joy. And that's the greatest universe that could have ever been created. Here's the last image, just just so you have another picture in your mind. Six little puppies on the floor. And uh, they're brown balls of fur. And they're nipping at each other and just tangled all up together. And they're all thirsty and biting at each other and licking each other. And you take a big yellow bowl of water. And you set it on the floor. And suddenly a transformation. Whoosh, and these little six puppies go. Whoosh, and they're like six brown petals. Around this yellow bowl of water. Drink, 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 drink. Now what's the center? What's the center in that picture? And the answer is the water's the center. Not the puppies, not even their thirst. The water is the center. That's the way it is with God. When God comes down in New England or on your church, if the people are Christian hedonists, they will Stop their wrangling and stop their tangling and their nipping and they will go right to the bowl, start drinking life in. And at that moment, when they are the most satisfied, God will be the most glorified. And so I want to stick by my hedonism and say, yes, it is our duty to pursue our joy in God all the time. And the last question is. And this is the next hour, so I'm, I'm, I'm really done. But I want to just make sure you know what we're going to come to after lunch. You might say, okay, I, I might even be persuaded vertically with God that we should pursue our joy all the time in him and that he gets glory when we do that. I, that that's starting to work. But if you were to tell me, as I am going to tell you, That in all of my dealings with people, at the horizontal level, I should also pursue my joy in relating to you, my joy, 
then you're going to have to go a long way because that really sounds like a contradiction of 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Love seeks not its own. And I'm not sure I do feel loved if someone uh, is pursuing their own pleasure when they deal with me. So that's it's the horizontal issue and, the, and really the, the, the rubber meeting the road pastoral issue that we have to deal with after after lunch. So I'm done.